helping a business grow up is an unbelievably fun and very rewarding thing to do because it didn't feel just transactional. It felt like I was building an opportunity for all the people in the business to really just fly. Hello everyone and welcome to the Private Equity Power Talks podcast. I'm your producer, Richard Ayliffe. For this episode, we're joined by Gabby Silver, former CEO of CHS Healthcare, who partner with the NHS and social care providers in order to deliver vital care to patients from the point they are discharged from hospital and beyond. Not only did Gabby work with the NHS throughout the COVID pandemic, delivering care to thousands of patients, she also achieved high levels of growth, culminating in the trade sale of her business. Gabby shares her insights from this experience, focusing on crisis management, client relationships, remote working, and deal execution. Being a PE-backed CEO is an incredibly high-pressured and complex role. Having done this in the healthcare sector during a pandemic makes Gabby's story even more impressive and one you should not miss. Now, over to Sam and Gabby. So I think probably what our listeners and what I would like to know first, Gabby, because we know you've been through um, an incredible year as we all have, but yours even more so considering CHS have been supporting the NHS for the last uh, 14 months. We're going to talk about that experience over the last year. We're going to talk about your exit, talk about the future for the business. But what would be really interesting is just to find out how you got here, because you've actually got a very interesting background. It's not not necessarily the standard route to CEO. Just just tell us how you got to this position. Yeah, so I think I am inherently quite an opportunistic person and also very curious. And as soon as I see something that prompts my interest, I'm I'm interested and I want to learn more. And I think that's been the nature of me throughout. So I studied to be a doctor loved being a doctor for the few years I did it. I didn't do it for very long, but I loved the academic study of it and uh, the breadth it gave you and the privilege, and it is a privilege to be able to be with people in their most vulnerable moments. But uh, as I was sort of deciding which area of medicine I wanted to do, I became aware through my husband, who was a lawyer who was doing an executive MBA, that there were doctors who did other stuff. And as soon as I heard that, oh, that's... That's exciting, and they were um, going into the pharmaceutical industry, and they were um, setting up businesses. So I realised that there was a world beyond medicine, and in those days, it was a bit frowned upon. But I've never been one to be too intimidated by people who say that's the fo- you know that's the path forward, and you have to follow it. So, in all reality, I had a terrible night on call, and I hadn't slept for you know, days really, and I was flicking through in the doctor's mess a uh, the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, and there was an advert there for joining medics to join the pharmaceutical industry. And I was a bit fed up, exhausted, um, and I applied for the job. And as it happened, the person who was running the Japanese pharmaceutical company happened to be a medic as well, who had also taken this somewhat unorthodox path. And actually, I think I owe it to the to the director of anaesthetics when I went to him and I was absolutely petrified you know all this money and time had been invested in me I was a doctor it was the privilege and I said Tim I've um, I've been offered a job in the pharmaceutical industry expecting him to go that's it's the dark side yeah. how can you go into commerce and he said oh what an amazing opportunity he said I wish 
I'd studied for the bar. He said, I've been doing this job for 40 years and every single day he, he said to me, I wish I'd been a barrister. So he said, go with my blessing, you can have a year, see whether you like it. And so I had freedom to operate and day one I knew I loved, I mean, I loved it. I loved the flexibility, I loved the variety, I loved meeting commercial people, science people, I loved meeting smart people. It was so much fun and I knew I wasn't going to go back to standard clinical practice and that was my journey. I went into the pharma industry, met brilliant people, it's an amazing, amazing and we know now in Covid, thank God for the pharma industry mm. in collaboration with ac academia because they have absolutely delivered for us. Mm. Um, and I worked in an area that I felt very passionate about, which was Alzheimer's disease. There were no treatments. It was absolutely cutting edge. And then went into med tech, realizing that you can't treat people with medicines without properly diagnosing them, identifying them, and knowing whether the drugs that you're giving them are working. So went to GE to do medical diagnostics, medical tech, and software, expanded my capabilities. And then into communications and I think a hugely um, important part of... Oh, I mean, that was, that's a career change yeah, in itself, isn't it? Yeah, that was a massive it? career change. And part of the reason was because throughout my time I'd seen how people reacted to me having gone into industry and they were so dismissive. You know, how can you turn... It truly was, how can you turn to the dark side? And yet I was on the side seeing the phenomenal innovations that these people were delivering. I was thinking there's a disconnect here. The pharma and tech are delivering unbelievable game-changing progression to, the, to healthcare and yet nobody really understands their role in it. And so I went to, I went to Brunswick, went to a phenomenal communications mm. um, agency to try and help change what is such a distorted image and the reputation has to improve and in fact again COVID has done wonders for them because they're suddenly now seen as a partner and a very very important partner but up until that point they were just seen as making money from people's ill health and I don't know whether it's something in me but I have never felt uncomfortable that commercial um, organizations sit alongside healthcare. The two are absolutely integral to one another. You need, you need, you need funds and you need the, 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 the sort of understanding that comes with running a, an organization to help the public sector and healthcare systems deliver even more. Mm -hmm. And I've never felt uncomfortable about that. So going to Brunswick to help some of these very large organizations reposition themselves and their reputation and deal with the crises and we did a lot of crisis management which has helped me since actually yeah i bet yeah so it's all of it has been cumulative mm. no, no experience hasn't added i think to the breadth of my insight and ability to see things from sort of multiple perspectives how did the chs role come about did someone come and knock on your door or yes kindly BGF came and knocked on my door, knew of me, and I'd always said, you know, if there was a, a you know, small dynamic healthcare business, I'd love to mm -hmm. wrap my arms around it. I'd done some work at McKesson in running one of their acquisitions, and I just knew I loved building a team with a common purpose, wrapping my arms around it, and having full responsibility. You know, when you're running a business unit, it feels different. You know, you've got the whole matrix around you. I, in, in effect, I wanted to have my neck on the line. Mm. I wanted to step up and, and be held fully accountable 
for the success or otherwise of a of an organisation. And so BGF were aware that uh, that there was this business that they just invested in that the founder who was also a medic and I think that helped I think he felt more comfortable handing over to another medic mm. uh, particularly when it comes to client relationships um, so it all just fell into place and, and you had actually you, you had worked for um, Lloyd's and McKeeson yeah. In, yeah. in home care yeah. you, which yeah. we can talk about what CHS yeah. do but I mean it's I knew relevant. community delivery different because that's all based around medications but I knew that actually care had to go beyond the hospital. You know, we're all aware of the big white building and think that's where it all happens. Mm. But again, I think COVID has shown us you need to extend uh, support right into the community and you have to cross between health and social care. And I think that was what really interested me about CHS is that they weren't only health aligned, they were also supporting transition into social care. And, and, and we're foolish to think that as people get sicker or have healthcare needs that they don't change what they need from from a social care perspective the care that they need has such an impact on how whether they do from a health perspective so the two are inextricably linked and that was a business that had one foot in health and one foot in social very few do that so that's what got me particularly excited and what, what was the brief how, how bgf had <laughs> fairly recently invested. very recently so i so about six months before nine months before um and the founder wanted to step away he it was wanted part of his he wanted plan. to but still felt you know he you know he'd, he'd run the business for over 20 years it was very much his business he was known by his first name with the clients you know it's richard or dr richard newland's coming to talk to us you know he very much was front and center but i think he did realize that um with the advent of the BGF investment, that it needed professionalising. You know, he would admit very happily that, you know, building an HR function, building a really um, robust finance function was not what he loved. He loved being in front of the customers, winning the business and, and growing it. But it had reached a critical mass that he knew that it needed some, um, some support. And particularly as we were, and he was aware that, you know, the next time round, the exit needed to demonstrate that the business was was on a, a much more professional footing. So everything was probably going to plan. You were about a year, 14, 16 months in, yeah. something like that. Yeah. And then, hey presto, like everybody else, COVID hit. COVID hit. And, and for you, I mean, it, well, just, I, I have, we haven't really talked about it, so I'm very interested to hear what it must have felt like, because it must have felt like the, a tidal wave's about to hit us. Uh, can we handle the the volume and, and yeah, of, the of requirement getting... that's going to be asked of us. Absolutely. I think, I think the turning point for me was that I realised we were going to have to handle a tidal wave, as you describe, and I had a short period to get the business onto a, a sustainable footing. The decision to move the business entirely remotely was a very difficult one because if you are in, in a hospital and you've got people walking around the wards helping discharge people to then not be visible, I mean, the conversations I had with clients were very difficult. We're in at the front end, you know, we're in at the deep end mm. here, we're firefighting and you're going to, you're going to exit the hospital. But I was convinced, and it fortunately turned out to be the right decision, that we would never deliver sustainable support if we were in the hospital because we were all going to come down with COVID. 
And I knew that because sadly on a personal level, my family had been impacted very, very early on. And as soon as I'd seen what havoc and trauma this condition could, could you know, exert, I knew I had to get people out of high-risk environments. So we took the entire business remote before we went into lockdown. It meant that we could get all the IT set up and get these people ready and functioning. And actually, it was a needs-must situation. So our clients said, well, we don't like this. We want you in, but they needed our help anyway. So I said, you've got to trust us. We will support you remotely. We will get people out by being remote, but you've got to trust us. And they hadn't have another option. So we were, we were discharging hundreds and hundreds of people out of the hospital. Via... via screen time via, via Zoom all, all, all Zoom, all telephone calls. Um, I think the, the reason we could do it effectively was the strength of our relationship with the discharge teams in the hospital, but also the strength of the relationship with the providers, i.e. the care homes um, and the domiciliary care providers that were going to deliver support. They knew us, they trusted us. If we placed a patient with them, um, that they knew that we had matched them appropriately and they were going to be able to deliver care. Now, clearly, in those early days, the access to testing and the ability to know exactly the cohorts, we were working with the best knowledge that we had at the time. And as soon as you know, proper testing came in and almost what, what I would describe as, as holding facilities to, to ensure people were COVID-free before they were moved out, weren't in place but as soon as they were that's what that's what we helped set up and and move people out but actually we were just hand-holding a lot there are some very very frightened people frightened people in hospital that wanted to get out quickly and needed to to stay safe and frightened care providers I think what we've seen through Covid is um, a new understanding of the fact that delivering social care is no you know whether you're a private provider or a local authority funded facility it's very difficult and it's very uh it's very harsh and they needed some support to to help them do that yeah the resilience i mean the nhs has uh, we can't we can't i i, I have I fundamentally massively believe in, mm. in the quality of the NHS. Mm. I mean, when you have family and your closest family, your husbands and wives and your parents um, cared for in a critical state by the NHS, you can't think anything else than this is an incredible institution. Mm. But uh, yeah, there is, there is a, what, what this last 12, 14 months has demonstrated is that we, don't, we haven't invested enough no. in this, this incredible institution. Yeah. The resilience and cap the capability and resilience from this organisation is weak because, because it's, there's, there's not enough investment into it. And it, well, it's investment, but it's, this is what I always say, is that it's investment and it's an openness to exactly as you say, what the NHS is brilliant at is critical care of very sick people. Mm. It's, I mean, it's better than world class. world class. It's less good at managing social care that has an impact on health it's it's not set up to do that and actually there's a big sort of middling group of people that need integrated care and the nhs was never set up to do that mm -hmm. and social care is under the purview of local authorities and local government and nhs are run very differently so our structure isn't right to make that happen and i would say this wouldn't i but i passionately believe it that independent providers such as CHS can help be the glue between those two yeah. and can partner to make it work better. Um, 
because I still believe that nurses who deliver clinical care should not be brilliant at discharging a patient and knowing what care homes are suitable for yeah. them. They, you have to know the provider market. It changes all the time you've got to be in. That's not a nurse's job. And yet the NHS is quite fixated on putting clinical people behind everything and, and not almost being bold enough to say, we're never going to be good at that. We don't want to be good at that. You're good at that. Why don't we partner with you to do that? It doesn't sit comfortably. And that's the issue, is that let them be brilliant at what they're brilliant at and let other people do stuff that they shouldn't be brilliant at. Yeah. Do you We're think that's going to change now, though, over the last year? Not really, no. Sadly, I think that... I think the NHS has got to do, it's got to recover. I mean, people, it's made up of people and they yeah. need to exhausted recover. Exhausted people. They are exhausted. But actually, um, my concern is it's become a bit untouchable. You know, nobody from a political point of view really wants to disrupt the NHS because it's delivered what it's delivered under, you know, profound um, pressure and, you know, unprecedented pressure. But it needs a lot of reform. It's always needed a lot of reform, and it needs massive, massive change in. And, and what they're doing is they're structurally changing it. But fundamentally, the attitudes around, as I say, partnering and really recognizing that there are other experts, yeah. I think is going to get worse. I think they will become. Um, oh, that's it's a real shame to hear that. You'd sort of expect. The sort of push towards part private privatization now this this is the time to say no. okay we need more resilience we more need more infrastructure that will the it's too politically sensitive for that to happen and um the privatization of the nhs has forever been one of the most politically sensitive footballs and until there's any level of sort of cross-party involvement it's too difficult an issue for a government and, and because the NHS needs support but it needs support through rationalisation and rethinking how they deliver some stuff A, nobody's got the headspace for it, the appetite but actually it's too sensitive an area for them to go so actually sadly I think we've got a while to go before that becomes yeah. feasible <laughs>
just meeting other people in a similar situation to bounce ideas about being what's going on in their businesses and what they're getting with their investors has been really invaluable for me. It's given me you know, so much more confidence in the boardroom. It's great for networking. And I would recommend the course to anybody in a management team with a company that's backed by private equity. If you would like more information on the Pep Talks Excellence Programme, then get in touch with us directly or email us at info at pep-talks.co.uk. So, so when did the potential for you know, an exit You've just taken the business through an exit. Yeah. It happened in March. Yeah. So, you know, the first few months for you were just, okay, we've got to get everybody at home. We've mm. got to get the business working and, and functioning to the same degree as it ever has done under tougher conditions, mm. higher degrees of stress and volumes. When did it get to a point where you think, okay, well, actually now we're, this might, this might um, this could happen. lead to a path of mm. change of ownership and exit? I think it's partly actually I give you some credit is that I remember we had you know there was a there was a pep talks event and I think we were talking about we well, are going to have had a good war or a bad war a good covid or a bad covid mm. and I knew at that time clearly we were going to come out having had a, a very strong covid and it made me think well what value does that add to the business so I went to BGF and you know the founder um, and sort of said you know, I just, I just wonder whether our ability to ride the wave of COVID and be pandemic resilient is going to change a multiple. I mean, I was sort of straightforward about it. It's like, surely now, P houses, if that was going to be the, the, you know, the next exit, are looking to build a more resilient portfolio and health and something that's going to be involved. Because I think even in, and it was June last year, we were thinking... Yeah, sure, we're through the first wave, but nobody knows, you know, whether it's COVID or another pandemic is going to come and you need businesses that can ride the wave. So I was, I mean, it sounds sort of a bit mercenary, but I didn't mean it was like, this could be a moment yeah. where actually um, we're right on the front line and, and we've shown that we can do it. So it made me think, let's take a strategic review. How did they react review. to that? Well, they were like, yeah, there's possibly some some incremental value, but you know, and we're not not thinking about it. But we were sort of eighteen months, two years away from it. So we were in early prep mode, mm. I would say. Um, and we did a strategic review of trade and of PE, and you know, what are the elements of the business? You know, in terms of our software support that we want to make sure is totally integrated into our propositions and all the stuff that adds value and changes the multiple. And just through network, really, the uh, founder or the CEO, rather, of uh, our eventual acquirer, you know, knocked on my door and said, oh, I'd, love a, I'd love a coffee. <laughs> um, so it's off market. It, wasn't... it was off market. And this chap had, he said, you know, we've often admired you from afar. And we'd started to see them slightly encroach. <laughs> Uh, on one bit of our business, not the discharge business, but the um, assessments part of our business. And we'd seen them there and we thought, hmm, that's interesting. They're obviously playing around there. Um, but I was introduced to him via another contact who works in uh, social care. And he said, you know, Mike wants to meet with you. And I thought, hmm. Anyway, he said, if you ever come around to the idea of thinking exit, we, you know, we want to be on your list. Make sure we feature, Great. feature large. And again, I think... 
COVID was so interesting. We did all, you know, that was a remote conversation. And I said, well, you know, in the summer, why don't we meet for a coffee just to, you know, put face to a name? And then because we thought that that window might be short where we could all meet together, I said, why don't I bring the founder along as well? It'd be good for you to meet him. And that just, you know, then it just got everyone thinking and, you know, why, why not now? But I think they could see very clearly that how we had been positioned through COVID, if they could help us scale that um, and support them in terms of moving into service delivery in the NHS, they were gonna, you know, mm. they were gonna win. So, how did that conversation, that earlier conversation with BGF and the founder, did it? Did it? It obviously accelerated it to extent, mm. but it did, did it get them to a level where they thought, okay, actually, if we got X, that's the, that's the, the number. Uh, I don't think they were still, my, my sense was, I mean, you have to speak to them, Dara, but I, I think they were still a bit further behind that. I think we were still in, you know, bolt-ons, building still out, recurring, yeah, still work to do. You know, I'd, I'd professionalised the business, I'd created stability, we were, had a, you know, a much more robust commercial function. But prior to COVID, we were expanding into new relationships and that was what was exciting actually and investing a lot more in our technology and it was all happening so you know we had a, a, a plan of work which sort of got diverted by Covid and we were in the summer coming back to that plan of work um, and thinking strategically where do we want to make those investments so that we do you know we do have a very um, saleable organisation. So I think they were still on that. They were like, well, let's get back to the job of work here. Let's, uh, let's expand what we're already doing. So after that first meeting, mm. did Acacium? Acacium, yeah. Did, they, did, did that fairly quickly accelerate towards an offer? We had that first meeting. Um, it was sort of July time. Um, they wanted a, you know, just a bit more very top line information where they were looking at, you know, valuations and things like that. And then I think it properly got going in earnest over towards the end of August. Um, and I think that was partly them um, settling down. They had just had investment from Onyx and that that needed to come to a conclusion and finally complete. And then they had, uh, you know, then they had the headspace to, to go and to go and pursue us. So yes, it was, um, it, it, once it started moving, it, you know, it did move quite quickly. Yeah. I, I guess you wouldn't have known that they were talking to Onyx and they were potentially changing hands themselves. I suppose it all, you look at it in, in um, with hindsight, you actually think, well, that, all of that was sort of stacked in, in great favour. Yeah, because it was they were gonna go th They were going through a transaction. Mm. They'd just gone through a transaction and they then say, actually, there's, a, there's an amazing yeah. strategic acquisition here. And right off the bat, you know, let's get yeah. going. We've They're got probably talking about it through the tra their own transaction. Look, we, we yeah. really like looking yeah. at this business. Absolutely. I mean, they are, you know, on an aggressive growth path and you want to be, you know, first off. So they, they, they just knew that if they could get this going. Um, but also, I suppose they had their own nervousness that said they were getting to know Onyx. I mean, the Onyx transaction had been quite protracted actually so they knew when they first started talking to us that that was going to happen it was just a sort of just a long a long process um but they had to get to know their yeah. private equity house again and understand their culture their way of going about things and clearly they've done that to a degree through the transactions but it's different when you're at the other end of it and now they're steering the ship but it's uh 
so I, you know, I recognise they had to sort of tread quite difficult waters as well, actually. What did you learn about, was this the first time you, you, you delivered, I know you've done acquisitions mm. in the past, but it's the first time you've sold a business? Or Absolutely. What, 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 what did you learn about the process, <laughs> about, about it in terms of yourself and uh, the process and for the organisation? Mm. Well, it sort of creeps up on you. I, I, I now see the value of preparation. You know, as I said, we were sort of caught off guard. We'd started to talk about it, but we hadn't got ourselves prepped. And, you know, we've spoken, you've spoken a lot to other you know, experts in the industry about the importance of preparation and, and thinking that through always, always having that in mind. And we'd only just started turning our attention to it, and all of a sudden we were deep within it. And running a business, wave two had come, so back into full on, Yeah, because you, know, you did the deal in March, so you would have been we going were, through we, the transaction in absolutely. December, we, January, February. Yeah, even before then, I mean, we were started talking properly in August, September is when it all ramped up, so through from September, it was a long old process, September to February, end of February. Um, so trying to keep, I mean, it's hard, isn't it, trying to keep the business on track and managing the the vastness of you know, due diligence, which was, I mean, it was, we are, we're little, you know, and yeah. it, I didn't want everyone distracted by it. We brought very few people to, into, within to the, you know, knowledge circle of what was, what was going on because there was a business to run. Um, and the NHS is, um, the NHS is, is a very, important if you let them down they remember for a very long time you know maintaining those customer relationships and supporting them and also what had happened was um, we'd had a sort of handoff so in the first wave our discharge business was very busy because we were discharging people from hospital in the second wave what was happening was that all those people discharged from hospital needed uh, assessing for the sorts of social care they, they needed so the second wave for us wasn't so much about discharge, it was about assessment. So that was the other part of my business suddenly ramping up again, which had gone very quiet. So that was huge. In fact, we, you know, we've worked out, we did 6,000 reviews of patients from the point of uh, when they said we were allowed to start that again. The government stopped us doing it and then we were allowed to start it. 6,000 reviews, 6,000 patients, all supported remotely um, from September through till February. I couldn't right. let the customer down. And yet there was all this stuff that, that needed to be done. So, there's so a lot of pressure. A lot. It was a massive pressure, and the way that Acacia chose to um, manage the process was to have separate due diligence um, experts for each part. So that's a lot of repetition. You know, you are explaining the business and how you do things. To I think we probably had seven or eight different due diligence providers. Um, so it was it was it was heavy and uh, you know tiresome, but also. You know, I don't shy away from hard work. What I loved is that I was learning the whole time. I was learning how you know negotiations happen through that process. Learning how to manage all the stakeholders, whether it was BGF and the founder, um, the business as well, um, and telling the story of the business. And I think the most important thing is that I could see an amazingly good fit mm. for CHS within Acacia. I I didn't have to be persuaded that this was a good move. I could see. The scale and when you're dealing with a trade buyer rather than necessarily further investment from PE you can be more strategic those conversations are really meaty they're good stuff it's like what could we do together it's exciting mm. um, and so I think I was probably enthused by what I could see was the potential and I hope I 
well, clearly I did, enthuse them sufficiently that they were going to progress with it. I think that helped um, because it didn't feel just transactional. It felt like I was building an opportunity for all the people in the business to really just to fly. Yeah. yeah. And they are. And they are. They're doing, they're doing phenomenally That's well. That's quite interesting. What about you, though? So I suppose, you know, <laughs> when you go through a transaction like this, you have to prepare yourself for... Well, this this could be the end of the road for me. Yeah. You know, when you yeah. start to trade, they don't usually need another yeah. CEO. And and actually, that suited me. I think I have been so um, excited by my journey thus far in private equity. I mean, I just want to do it again. And you know, I could see that I felt an absolute um, freedom that came from you know, again, that that sense of wrapping my arms around an organisation mm -hmm. and making it making it better it's it's an unbelievable helping a business grow up is an unbelievably fun and uh, a very rewarding thing to do and you know I wasn't ready I wasn't done with CHS in a sense so I want to go and do it again you know I'm not you know I've, I've been fortunate I've had my time in big corporates uh, you know there's no better learning than you get from from GE but that's not that's not what I'm ready for I'm ready to to go and do it all again so I yeah. feel no I feel comfortable that the cultural fit for CHS and Acacium is brilliant. I feel like they are going to fly and, and really change the way that care is, is delivered. Um, so I, you know, I, I, you know, with my blessing as it were, I've got great leadership and I think that's the other thing. I had built a strong senior management team, we had succession planning, um, you know, my COO will step up and, and help run that, that, run CHS within the broader community business. and. He'll do an amazing job, and that all feels. I like that. You know, that's part of, of of leadership that I love is seeing people mm. do brilliant things and get stronger and more capable as they go along. Yeah. So, yeah. Although it came a bit early, you have fulfilled the brief yeah. in the. Yeah. You know, shape this business so it's robust enough to be able to handle life without a founder. Absolutely. Build systems and yeah. processes, help it scale, and all those things and happen. And all those things very, happen. Maybe a bit quicker <laughs> than you're expecting. Yeah, whilst I, whilst yeah. dealing with a pandemic. Yeah. Well, it's a slightly changing tack. We, we get challenged a, a fair amount, and fairly, in that there aren't enough female CEOs in, in private equity backed businesses. And, and, and there is, I mean, some sort of a shocking statistic is there are only about 50 private equity backed CEOs in the mm. UK that, that are women. Mm. Which, out of a number of around, we think around 12 to 1400 mm. private equity backed businesses <laughs> in the UK, we can happily say we have more, a, high, a much higher percentage of female members in pet talks than, than that ratio. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a big issue, and I just, for somebody who's who's got to the position you have, why don't more make it? What's the problem? Well, it's role models, isn't it? It's that critical mass of role models to encourage other women to head into that world, and then it's the it's the courage of your first, you know, your the investor who who is almost in effect your first foot on the ladder. And I suppose in lots of other walks of life, that's a very set path. You know, you make yourself eligible through a series of criteria, and then you're ready. You know, so in corporate environments, you're ready for leadership or whatever. The transition into private equity-backed businesses isn't a particularly defined path, and 
I think that first step on the ladder is so important. Someone has got to uh, take a bit of a punt on you, but recognise that it can be done. It is, mm. and you can safely um, and without risk transition someone from outside of a private equity backed organisation into that world very effectively. I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate that BGF were were happy to take uh, to take that on with me um, the, and, and the reason why it's it's not such a big thing but it, it, it appears big is that clearly your investor and your it is the person that will help you navigate um, and I think what they hopefully will understand as it becomes more and more common is that what time and energy they might have to invest in you to help you navigate the language and the the communication style and the and the way of demonstrating your worth is more than made up for in the diversity of thought that you bring and the and the different style of leadership mm. you know you, yeah. and and that leadership is very effective i think very authentic uh, drives people in a different way you will get to the same end point which is a successful exit but you might just need to do a bit more investment up front. I think that's, that's more than paid off for by bringing a whole new talent pool yeah. into, into the sector. So I think it's that, it's that first, um, first step on the ladder. But it's also uh, private equity expanding their horizons to look at this phenomenal talent pool that sits within other organisations, you know, if you've led a business unit in a huge organisation, your financial competency, your ability to build strong teams, your ability to um, integrate acquisitions, you'll have done it all. And just because there is more of a back office behind you, the skills that you've built as, built as a leader are, stay with you. So why aren't we looking in organisations like that? Why isn't that, you know, an unbelievably... Mm. Um, rich place to find to find talented women and then it's incumbent upon women like me to to say it can be done it's an incredibly exciting rewarding um and fun place to work and and don't be put off because you don't see many other women doing it you know mm -hmm. if you don't see many like you that can sort of suggest oh is there, is there something i don't know is there a mystique about it but there isn't well i think that that's that's hitting the nail on the head. I mean, what my concern is that uh, through Pep Talks, we're, mm. we're, we're obviously supporting management teams now as well with the Excellence Programme and Executive Community membership. And in that membership, diversity is, is much higher. Of course. So, you know, they, they, these um, that women in senior roles within existing management teams mm. need to look at examples yeah. and be inspired by yes they they, they can, they can reach the promotion of mm. running the business mm. you know i suppose it, it's about uh structures that allow you to do that you know in large organizations it's much more part of the dialogue the diversity um programs that are developed are more robust they yeah. exist and they have names and they're part of it you know in a small organization you're not necessarily going to do it through a very formal setting up of a women's network or a formal mentoring program. 
but you can do it informally. And I think as a, as a leader of a business, regardless whether it's private equity backed or not, you have an absolute responsibility to identify, to generate identified talent and to let, let your investors have sight of the talent because it only reflects well on you that you're building a great team. You know, there's nothing to there's there's nothing to um, to limit visibility of good people in the organisation. It's a it's a win-win for everyone. And I think you know you have you do have uh, a responsibility. And it's not necessarily about mentoring. You have to give people the skills and help them develop those skills. But you have to champion them, and that is a that is a different thing. Mm. That is putting your neck on the line to say that person can do that job. You absolutely need to be proactive. It doesn't just happen. You've got to be proactive, and you've got to tell other people's stories so that they get their moment to mm. to shine. And again, it's a unbelievably um, rewarding thing to do. It's not not an effort. It's a wonderful thing to do. Yeah. Well, thanks for telling us your story. Thank Gabby. you. Great to see you again, and uh, we really look forward to see what happens next. Likewise, thank you very much, Sam. What struck me was the critical big decisions she had to make very early on in the crisis, probably earlier than the rest of us in the need to pull her people out of hospitals and get their systems and capability up to a level that they could deliver their service remotely. And, you know, everyone had to do that work from home, but for her, it was discharging patients from hospitals and doing it remotely, which, which just would have been unthinkable prior to COVID. And she had to make that call very early on, like mid-March last year. So. That was a that was a massive critical decision because had she got it wrong, they just wouldn't have been able to deliver. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think it, it was a really interesting perspective on everything. It's like you say, where it just all happened so quickly and so early. I think from talking to our members throughout the pandemic, the usual story's been when it hit, it's maybe winding back a bit, you know, thinking about these furlough schemes and maybe cutting the costs. It was sort of a gradual process, whereas Gabby's story was right, we're really in the thick of this. We need to react quickly and it's going to be it's going to be a big growth journey. Yeah, absolutely. The second moment for Gabby was the realisation that this could be a moment of massive value creation and, and enhancement. And even though it's so much earlier than we had thought, maybe this is the moment that we maximise on that as a business and exit. Yeah, there's a, a lot to learn, I think, in terms of thinking about your exit timing there as well. So obviously that wasn't the plan before COVID, but I think it just shows you've always got to be on the lookout for those opportunities to go, even if it's not necessarily what your PE house was expecting or what they want. I think, you know, it's a conversation you need to have. If the opportunity shows itself a lot of the time, you just need to take it. Yeah, that's so true. You know, it's a great, it's a great example of, you know, what it means to be a CEO under private equity ownership. That, that need to be seeing the future coming down the track before anybody else does and understanding the, the sort of outcomes. So, you know, these these things usually happen over a period of uh, three, four years, don't they? Not in the space of uh, six to 18 months. So listening to Gabby and her story, she had just that sort of accelerated process of private equity ownership that was hugely accelerated by COVID. 
So, yeah, it was, it was a love talking to her. It was great to see her again, having not seen her for over 14, 15 months. And we'll look forward to seeing what she does next. I'm sure it's going to be really exciting.